Amen. You may be seated. Well, on Thursday, July 20th, my family, we packed the van uh, to the brim and backed out of our driveway at about 6.30 a.m. Uh, to embark on a 16-hour trek across, across the country to Cooperstown, New York. And we were heading to Cooperstown, New York because my youngest son, Brooks, was playing in a baseball tournament there. And uh, there's kind of this special thing when you're 12 years old, you can go out to Cooperstown, New York and play in a baseball uh, tournament with teams from all over the country, even from different parts of the world. There was teams from Canada, from uh, Puerto Rico that were there, from Dominican Republic, uh, from uh, California all the way uh, to New York. And so it was a pretty awesome experience, 55 teams participating over six days of baseball. And so a lot of baseball happened uh, out in Cooperstown, New York. And if you're familiar with Cooperstown, New York, it's where the MLB Hall of Fame is at. And so it's a kind of a special time uh, for these boys. And of the 12 families that were going out to Cooperstown, New York, and his team, we were the only family driving, uh, at least both ways that is. Uh, one family was driving out there and flying back. Another was flying there and driving back. But we were driving both ways. And I was talking to one of Brooks's coaches. And just a few days before the trip, he's like, you guys are driving, right? And I said, yep. And he says, uh, what are you driving? Are you driving the van? And I was like, yep. And he asked that question because he uh, knows that our van is not new. In fact, we just surpassed 200,000 miles. So I feel like we passed a milestone. I feel pretty good that I've driven a vehicle that long. Uh, hopefully it goes another 100,000 miles or whatever. But we got in the car and we drove down the street and I told my kids, we need to pray. We need to pray because we need God's grace. Uh, we're driving a van with 200,000 plus 1,000 miles on it, and uh, there's eight of us in this car together, and we're going to be in the car for the next 16 hours plus. And so we need God's grace. We need his help in our time of need, protecting us from others on the road and maybe from one another inside the car. I don't know. We'll see. But the grace of God is a topic that we talk about or we, the word we use quite a bit, but it's not a topic we necessarily dive in all that much. In the grace of God, you can think about it this way. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's God's grace is acting in our lives, not because we deserve it, but because God himself is gracious. When you think about unmerited favor, it means that we don't deserve it. And so God's grace is him acting in our lives, not because we deserve it, but because God himself is Gracious, as one said, the grace is the ongoing benevolent act of God working in us, without which we can do nothing. And this unmerited favor of God, of God or the grace of God is experienced in many ways. We experience it through God's comfort, through his encouragement, through his deliverance, through provision, direction, protection, discipline, strengthening, and so much more. And what we'll see in this passage this morning is God's grace on display, his unmerited favor on display in the lives of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. There are three scenes this morning, three scenes of God's grace. We have God's direction, God's provision, and God's favor. First, God's direction, verse 8. The child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham held a feast on the day Isaac was weaned. A big day is taking place in Isaac's life. No longer would he be relying on his mother or her milk for nourishment, but instead he would start eating food. And to help with this transition, Abraham threw this great feast for his son Isaac. Now the fact that Abraham is celebrating Isaac's weaning clues us into how old Isaac probably is. 
Uh, though ancient Near Eastern cultures weaned their children at different ages, the Israelites tend to wean their children at about three years old or later. And so more than likely, Isaac was about three years old. He was a toddler. And so the story moves quickly from celebrating the birth of Isaac to celebrating the day that Isaac is weaned. And there's a celebration going on. As a celebration is taking place, something happens. Verse 9. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. You know, a day of celebration just has to be sullied by something. I can remember a number of times in my life, different birthday parties, when something happened. It's a day of celebration, yet it was sullied by some negative experience. One of my birthdays, I got this Nerf football as a gift. And a Nerf football had this, like, tail thing on it that you could throw it super far and make this whistling sound as it goes uh, through the air. And I remember before my birthday party was over and before I even got to play with the gift, the Nerf football was broken. And I was sitting there with my dad and I was just crying. Uh, you know, it's like 10 years ago this was happening. And, I was, <laughs> wrong with that. and uh, my dad's like, why are, you, why are you so upset? I'm like, well, you know, because I'm, there's my tears and all this. Because my football's broken. I haven't even got to play with it yet. And it's already broken. And my birthday's not even over. And my dad, you know, trying to console me. I remember another birthday party. Uh, all my friends came over, and, and we had this party going on. And then I got sick. I got this fever, and I'm laying on the couch. And I'm laying on the couch the rest of the evening as all my friends are playing with my toys <laughs> that I got for my birthday. And I'm just like, what the heck? Now, most of my birthdays have been pretty good. There's just a couple there. But there's oftentimes these celebratory moments that then are kind of stifled by something negative. And in this moment, there's this celebration happening. And then Sarah sees something out of the corner of her eye. And what does she see? Ishmael, the son of the slave, laughing at or mocking her son Isaac, her son. And it's not her son mocking her son, it's the son of the slave mocking her son. He's making fun of Isaac. Now, there's great irony here. As you know, the name Isaac means to laugh. And you think about uh, Sarah. Sarah, when she heard that God told her, you're going to give birth to a son, she laughed at God in disbelief and then she gets pregnant gives birth to a son and she laughs out of joy and belief in what God had done and she names her son Isaac meaning to laugh and then there's this scene where Ishmael is laughing at his younger brother Isaac that Isaac Sarah are being mocked at laughed at by Ishmael but why why is Ishmael this probably 16 year old boy at the time mocking his three-year-old baby brother Isaac who does that well for one an immature 16 year old boy does that but on the other hand someone who's jealous or envious does that why would Ishmael though have been jealous of Isaac well think about what's going on with the birth of Isaac Ishmael has been somewhat displaced you know, Ishmael, he's used to the focus and attention of his father, Abraham. He's, in one sense, the sole focus of Abraham's love. But that's no longer the case with Ishmael entering into the world. And I don't know if you've ever watched older kids. You've experienced this in your family or with other families. There's the older sibling, and then number two is coming. And you bring number two home, and number one is not quite sure what to do with number two. And there's a little bit of jealousy and rivalry there, because now there's, there's this other child in the home, and that child is getting more attention from mom than, he, uh, than this, the older child is getting, that he's used to. And so there's a sense of conflict and rivalry, even with younger kids. And we see this, that Isaac, 
Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the child who would carry on God's promise of Abraham being this great nation that would bless all other nations in the world, ultimately leading to the birth of Christ. And naturally, much attention then is given to Isaac because there's much anticipation and built up of Isaac coming into the world. This is the son that we have been waiting for. And then Ishmael kind of falls to the wayside. And so Ishmael, mocking, laughing at, making fun of his younger brother out of jealousy, out of envy of Isaac. And see, this is what envy does. Envy belittles others. And it turns the person whom you are to be friends with into an enemy. That another person becomes an enemy as opposed to a brother. And you start looking at another person as someone who has taken something that you want or has something that you want to possess that you even think that you might deserve. And deep down you think, if I can just get that thing, if I can have that position, if I can gain that attention that they have from that person, then I will be content, then I will be happy, then I will be satisfied. But getting something that you envy will never actually bring about contentment. It will never bring about happiness. It will never thoroughly quench the desire of your soul. Instead, it will eat you from the inside out and turn people who you are to be friends with into enemies that you're fighting against. James was dealing with this in the church and he writes to the churches and he says, for where there is envy And selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. What was the root cause of the the disorder and every evil practice in the church? Envy, selfish ambition. And you think about your own life for a moment. Is there disorder and conflict in your relationships? If there's disorder and conflict in your relationships, one of the reasons that may be taking place is because there is envy and jealousy in your heart towards another person. Just think about your own life. Is there something that you want that another person has? Is there conflict in a relationship between you and another person? And is it due to the fact that you want something they possess? And because you so badly want what they possess, you're beginning to hate them for having it. This is what happens, that bitterness creeps up in our soul when there's envy that is unaddressed, not dealt with in our own life. So what does Sarah do? How does Sarah respond to Ishmael's mockery? Well, here's a a picture for you. Mama Bear comes out. Something happens. As parents, you know that something happens when you find your child being mocked, insulted, threatened. You go into protection mode. And this is what happens to Sarah. Sarah kind of goes into protection mode. Right or wrong here, she goes up to Abraham and she says, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. No way. She sees what's happening and she immediately marches over to Abraham. I could just see she's got this look in her eye and she goes over and she makes a statement, you must drive out this slave with her son. The animosity, the the absence of affection for Hagar and Ishmael is still very strong in the heart of Sarah. And not only does she want Abraham to throw them out, but she won't even call them by their name. She refers to them as slave and her son, not Hagar and Ishmael. Not even your son, 
There's no respect, no love, no affection. She saw them as a threat to her, a threat to her son, and she wants them gone, and she wants them gone now. And you can imagine here, Abraham, he's standing there celebrating his uh, youngest son's uh, weaning, and then his wife comes over, and she's very upset, and she makes this demand. And what we're told is that Abraham, in verse 11, is very distressed. He hears this, and he becomes very distressed, very stressed out about the situation, that now all of a sudden there's this pressure in his life. He's supposed to be celebrating his son's weaning, but now there's this pressure that's happening, this conflict that's arisen in his life, this problem that now needs to be solved. And why? Why is he distressed? Well, because Ishmael is his own flesh and blood. This isn't just anybody. This is his own son. Regardless of how that son came about, it is his son. Ishmael belongs to him. And he's being asked to take that son, in a sense, throw him to the curb because of his wife's probably own jealousy and feeling threatened. What a horrible spot to be in. What a horrible problem to be left to solve. And before we get to how that is solved, it's important to remember how Abraham got here. This conflict came as a result of his own lack of faith many years prior. That many years prior, he and his wife Sarah failed to trust God. That God had promised that they would, be the, they would become the parents of this great nation, yet they had no offspring. Yet God promised that you will have offspring. But that was not happening, and so in their own wisdom, in their own flesh, Sarah and Abraham devised a plan. Sarah says, sleep with my slave Hagar. Abraham does just that. She's pregnant, gives birth to this son, Ishmael. That what Abraham and Sarah did is they tried to accomplish God's plan and promise in their own way rather than God's way, rather than waiting on God and trusting in God. And what they were experiencing then was still the consequences of that decision to not trust God. This conflict that was in the home ongoing that we see come up throughout the life of Sarah and Abraham. And brothers and sisters, we must remember that when we fail to follow God's plan to do things God's way, there will be consequences. There will be fallout. There will be pain. And that pain, those consequences may be ongoing like Sarah and Abraham. And many of us have probably experienced consequences from decisions that we've made years ago, even yet today, or we experience the consequences of decisions that were made by our parents, even yet today, or whomever. And the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, the seeds that we sow will come to bear fruit at some point in time. The seeds that we sow, whether good or bad, will bear good or bad fruit. And so Abraham is in part experiencing some of the result of a decision that he made that was not in faith many years ago. And he finds himself in this good old-fashioned pickle. His wife on one side, who's given birth to the son of the promise, saying get rid of his son on the other side, his own flesh and blood. What is he supposed to do? What would you do? I thought to myself, what would I do in that situation? What would you do? Well, at this point, 
enters the grace of God. That in Abraham's conflict, in his difficulty, God graciously comes to Abraham and provides a way, gives him direction, tells him what to do. Verse 12, God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac and I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. I don't know about you, but I would be so thankful and so welcoming to God's intervening in my life if I was in that situation. I mean, how many times in your life have you been like, God, just tell me what to do. Should I go right? Should I go left? I don't know, but just tell me what to do. You're in a pickle. You're in a situation where you, you're kind of at these crossroads. What, um, what, do I, what do I do, God? And I know there have been many times, my God, I wish you'd just intervene and just tell me audibly what to do in this situation. And this is what we see God so graciously doing for Abraham, that he provides clarity and direction, even though Abraham did not deserve it. Abraham, it doesn't say that Abraham cried out to God. And Abraham doesn't deserve it. It's not like God has to do something, but God, because he is gracious, he steps into Abraham's life and he provides clarity and direction for Abraham. Abraham, listen to your wife, Sarah. And so what does Abraham do? Verse 14, early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. In other words, Abraham does exactly what he's told to do. Now, Told by whom? By Sarah? Well, yes, but ultimately by whom? By God. By God. What we see here is that ultimately who Abraham is obeying is not his wife, but God who told him to listen to Sarah. That Abraham listens to God. That in this moment of crisis and conflict, what we find of Abraham is that he is obeying God. God, in a very real sense, Abraham is learning, continuing to learn, to trust God. And he demonstrates this trust in God by obeying God, even though what God is asking him to do is hard. We shall not minimize the difficulty of what Abraham is doing, what he's being asked to do. Just because God comes to him and says, you should do this, does not mean that what God is telling him to do is not hard. That Abraham is in this conflict. He has clarity. He has direction that God has graciously provided for him, provided to him. But he still has to make a decision to tell his son, you must go. You must leave. And in Abraham doing so, we find Abraham trusting God. God. And an important truth for us is this, is though obedience can be hard, obeying God's direction is always best. Though obedience can be hard and oftentimes is hard, obeying God's direction, God's plan, God's will, his instruction for our life is always best. This is the truth that is echoed over and over throughout the Bible. We listen to Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus talking about what it means to follow him. He's just calling the crowd along with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross here is not this thing that we put around our neck to remind us of the salvation we have in Christ. No, no, no. The cross at that point in time was one one and only thing. It was a symbol of suffering, of death, not life. 
You must deny yourself, Jesus said. Boy, that is not easy. Conceptually, that sounds fine until you, the rubber meets the road and you're told to stop doing something, to not pursue something that you want. You read God's word and God, God's word meets you in your sin and God says you must change and submit to me and you think, I don't want to do that. That's hard. Or where obedience to Christ does produce suffering in our life, relationally with other people, whatever it might be. But the promise that Jesus offers in verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Life. Blessing. That God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. It always leads to what's best, even if we don't clearly understand it in the moment. And ultimately what is best is God's way. And as we walk in God's way, what we will experience is life, relationship with God, and so much more. And see, God, God displayed his grace by intervening and providing Abraham with clear direction about what he should do in a complex and stressful situation. But seen Two, the second scene of God's grace is God's provision. God's grace is displayed again here through his provision for Hagar and Ishmael. In verse 14, early in the morning, Abraham gets up, takes the bread, the water skin, puts on Hagar's shoulders, and sends her and the boy away. And Hagar and Ishmael, they leave, and they begin to wander in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, obviously, this is not a joyful departure. This is not, they're in the driveway hugging one another, saying, we'll see you soon type of thing. But this is a departure where it's, you must leave. And I'm not sure if I will ever see you again. Bleak, grim, sad. Yet Abraham sends them off, trusting in the promises of God, that God would take care of them, that God would make Ishmael a great nation. And Hagar and Ishmael take off and begin to wander in the wilderness. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bow shot away, for she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. She's given bread and water, and they leave and as they're wandering around in the wilderness, they are drinking the, bread, drinking the water, eating the bread. Slowly the water is depleting, the bread disappearing. Eventually there is no water, there is no bread, and they're in a situation of dire need. And Hagar sits down and has no idea what to do. She's left with nothing. She has no water, she has no bread, therefore... No life. That life was seemingly going to come to an end. And she says, I can't bear to watch the boy die. And so she sets her, leaves the boy about a bow shot away. And while she sat at a distance, what does she do? Well, what any person oftentimes does when they're hopeless and sad, depressed and despair, she cries. She weeps loudly. I mean, I could just imagine here what's going on in Hagar's mind. Kind of like... What did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Why, why is this happening to my son? After all these thoughts, questions, things are going in her mind as she's weeping, as she's crying loudly. 
and she's thinking there's no way we're going to survive, and she has no idea what to do. There's no hope. She's in a horrible situation. Death seems to be imminent, and she is just weeping loudly, maybe with some hope that somebody would hear her and do something. And somebody does hear her. And that somebody isn't just anybody, but God. And God hears specifically, he says he heard the boy crying. The boy whom he promised to make a great nation out of. And he says, the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well and so she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. There are three valuable truths about God in our pain that we can learn from these verses that are echoed throughout the Bible. One is this, is God hears or God is near. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near the broken hearted. Oftentimes when we are in despair, when we are depressed, when we feel hopeless, we feel like God is far away. But brothers and sisters, one of the glorious truths of the gospel is that God is never far away. In fact, he is nearer to you than anyone else. He lives inside of you. That one of the glorious truths of the gospel is that the Spirit of God resides in us, Paul says. That when we are brokenhearted, no matter how we feel, that we feel that God is so far away, God is actually so near. He's near, and he hears your pain and your suffering. And what does God do? Well, second, God comforts. I love Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, He comforts us in all our affliction. All. You just step back and think for a moment, what was Paul's affliction? Paul's affliction wasn't like he stubbed his toe on a rock while he was traveling somewhere to share the gospel. Paul's affliction was that he was beaten within the square inch of his life multiple times for sharing the gospel. He was thrown out of cities. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. And he ultimately did die for the gospel. But what does Paul say as he's living and he experienced all this affliction? He says, God, he comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And how does God often comfort? Well, he comforts us through one another, through the body of Christ. But oftentimes the way God comforts us, even through one another, is through his word. Notice, how does God comfort Hagar, Ishmael? Through his word. He comes and says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, Hagar. I've heard the boy crying. Get up, help the boy, for I will make him a great nation. Abraham, how does God comfort Abraham in his distress? Through his word. Don't worry, Abraham. I will take care of the boy. He is your son, and he will become a great nation also. 
that over the years, the thing that God has used to comfort me in whatever little affliction I have experienced over the course of, his, of my life is his word. And oftentimes what we do is we go to unsuitable replacements. We go to something else to try to find comfort in our times of pain, whether that be buying things or drinking things or eating things or experiencing things or whatever it might be. And those things always come up short in providing actual comfort. Because where true comfort comes from is God. God is the source of all comfort. And often where he comforts us is through his word. And he uses his word, whether it's to us directly as we're reading it or as somebody is sitting with us, reminding of us of what is true. It's God using his word to bring about comfort into our own life. And not only does God comfort, but he provides, and in this case, salvation. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well, and so she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. And then verse 20, God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt, that they were spared, that God provided a way out, that God saved them from the situation that they were in where there seemed to be no hope, no life. He opened the eyes of Hagar to a well and provided them water to drink to give them life. And brothers and sisters, has God not provided for us And there's many ways he's provided for us, whether it's homes and clothes and jobs and all these things, but he's provided for us in the greatest of ways. He's given us life through his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation, ultimate salvation. Salvation from the punishment for our sin, eternal separation from him. That he's granted us the hope of eternal life through Christ. And so God's grace is displayed in his provision for Hagar and Ishmael as well as for our own life through the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one more display of God's grace and that is, number three, God's favor. This chapter, chapter 21, ends with another meeting between Abimelech, who is the king of Gerar, and Abraham. And Abraham and Abimelech, Abimelech and his commander approach Abraham and they say to Abraham in verse 23, swear to me by God, And here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or my children and descendants. As I have been loyal to you, so you will be be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. Abimelech approaches Abraham and he wants to make this agreement with Abraham, this covenant with Abraham. What is the covenant? Well, basically to be at peace with one another. That Abraham would not attack him and try to conquer him at some point in time. And that Abimelech would not uh, try to conquer Uh, Abraham. They would not attack one another. They would live at peace with one another. And Abraham's response is, I swear it. In other words, I'll do it. I'll agree to it. But before the agreement is made, Abraham brings up an issue in verse 25. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. So at some point, Abraham had seemed to have dug a well and Abimelech's servants came and took the well from Abraham. And Abraham is 
letting Abimelech know this now. And in some ways, I think this tests whether or not this agreement that Abimelech is offering to Abraham is actually going to stand, if it's actually legitimate. And Abimelech responds, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. So what do they do? Well, Abraham, in verse 27, took flocks and herds, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham separated the seven lambs from the flock. He, Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these lambs? He replied, you are to accept the seven lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. And after they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. And so ultimately, Abraham and Abimelech make this covenant. But here's the question. Why? Why did this agreement ultimately happen? Why did Abimelech come to Abraham in search of this agreement from Abraham? Why? Well, it's because of something that Abimelech recognizes about the life of Abraham. And what is that? Well, verse 22. He says to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. God is with you in everything you do. That Abraham saw there was something different about, I'm sorry, Abimelech saw there was something different about Abraham. That God was with him. And not just in some things, but in everything. Now, why does he make that statement, or how does he conclude that God is with Abraham? Well, there's probably a number of reasons, but just one in particular. It goes back to what happened at the end of chapter 20, in the interaction between Abimelech and Abraham. In verse 17, it says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female slaves, so they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. If you remember what happened, just like with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Sarah and Abraham, they told Abimelech that Sarah was actually Abraham's sister. And we know this to be true, that Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. But he tells Abimelech this, and then Abimelech takes Sarah into his household. And as a result, for one reason or another, God completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household. Eventually, it came to the surface as to what was going on, that Abraham and Sarah were not just brother and sister, they were actually married. And Abraham, he prays to God for Abimelech and his household, and God heals all the people in Abimelech's household. Thus, thus Abimelech, concludes God is with Abraham. And in that day, gods were seen as powerful. And if your God is more powerful than my God, then I might be overtaken by you and your God. And so Abimelech, he wanted to be on the right side. That God had worked through the life of Abraham, and Abimelech sees this, and so God appro or Ab or Abimelech approaches Abraham and says, Abraham, will you make a treaty with me? Will you make an agreement with me? Abraham found favor with Abimelech, not because of something he did. Remember, what he did is he tried to trick Abimelech, but because of what God had done through Abraham. And brothers and sisters, as you follow Christ, 
My guess is you'll have similar experiences because of God's presence and work in your life. You'll find yourselves in situations where you have favor with others, where doors open for you to talk about what Christ has done in you, how he's changed you, why your life is the way that it is. Uh, a number of years ago, I was working at a different job and uh, working for a, actually a former teacher of mine, high school teacher. And we were sitting down in her office one day and during break, we were working with kids, so there's like a passing period or whatever was going on. And she said to me, she said, Luke, why is your life different? I said, well, what do you mean? She knows my whole family. She's known me for many years. And so she said, well, your life is different. And it's different from that of your family. I know your family and I know you and I know how you were in high school, but something's different now about you. And I didn't use this as an opportunity to be like, yeah, my life is way better. I, you know, I've been doing this or that or whatever. But I used it as an opportunity to tell her what was true is that God had changed me and is changing me. That it gave me, and I'm sure it gave me an opportunity for, to share the gospel with her. To tell her that the reason my life is different is not because of anything I've done. I haven't gone on some new uh, diet plan or some uh, whatever, weight, work, you know, whatever. I haven't done anything different in my life. It's all because of what ultimately Christ has done for me and through me. And by the grace of God, we have those opportunities. That as family members, friends, coworkers, whatever it might be, see that our lives are different. And if they inquire about that difference in our life, that we would open up and talk about Christ that we would use the favor that we have with others to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God's grace is displayed through his direction, provision, and favor. But what should we do? How should we respond? Well, just one point of application. We should worship God. We should worship God. This is what we're told about Abraham in verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Abraham does two things. One, he plants a tree in recognition of God's good gifts, including the son whom he would be given to carry on his bloodline. Abraham plants this tamarisk tree, a tree with many branches, small leaves that would grow to 20 to 30 feet high. And he plants this tree for what reason? Well, one, to symbolize the fruitfulness and prosperity of his life, but two, to memorialize that God is the source of that fruitfulness and prosperity. Abraham is not the source of the fruitfulness and prosperity in his life, but it's the grace of God that has come upon his life. It's God. God is the reason for the fruitfulness and prosperity in his life, and Abraham sees that. He recognizes that. He plants this tree to memorialize it. And second, he worships God. It says that he called on the name of the Lord. The idea of calling on the name of the Lord is to worship God. And how does he worship God? Who is God? The everlasting God. The all-knowing, eternal God. The God whose will would never be thwarted. The God whose promises would be fulfilled. The God who has been faithful and will be faithful to the man Abraham and ultimately to us. That Abraham worshipped God. And brothers and sisters, what we should do is worship 
God. Why? Well, because like Abraham, we have experienced God's grace on our life in many ways. The homes we live in, the education we get, the cars we drive, friends, we have all these different ways, but namely and primarily through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 3.7 says, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Why do you have hope? The hope of eternal life. Why are you justified, made right before a holy God when in and of ourselves we're not holy? Because of his grace, his unmerited favor on our life. His unmerited favor. That means we don't deserve the justification and the hope that we have been given through Christ. We don't deserve it. What you and I deserve is we deserve punishment for our sin. And the right punishment, the just punishment for your sin and my sin is eternal separation from God not to be with God, not to know God, but it's to be sent away, departed from God. But because God is gracious, he has intervened in our lives and he has sent his son Jesus to die the death that you and I deserve. That Jesus bore our sin in his body, his blood was shed, and he was abandoned for what? So that we may be forgiven of our sin, not abandoned by God, but that we might have the hope of eternal life with God. And what is the response to that grace? Worship. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is true worship. What is true worship? It's living a life that is wholly surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greater that we understand, the more we understand the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more we will want to worship God with our whole life. The more we see how God has, been, has given favor to us that we don't deserve, the more apt and willing we are to say, God, I will give you my life. I will do and live the way you want me to live because you deserve it. You have given everything for me. You've sent your one and only son to die the death that I deserve. And so brothers and sisters, we should worship. We should worship here as we sing praises to God, but we should worship outside of here, living our lives, surrendered in obedience to Christ saying, God, I want your will to be done in my life for your glory and for my good. Let's pray.